your Bibles if you'd like and turn with me to the book of Ezra. Appreciate so much Brother Kirk and Brother Harlan filling in for us a week ago and um, praising the Lord that we're on the mend, uh, doing better and hopefully going to be doing better and better throughout the course of this next week and just looking forward to um, what the Lord has in store for the life of our church over the next month or so. We've got some different things going on. One thing I will tell you is that I'm planning on starting back up on breakfast next Sunday. Uh, I was thinking about it today, and I was looking at some of your famished faces and knowing that Shane's starving to death and wishing we had some breakfast, and so we will uh, start bringing breakfast again next Sunday. Uh, I know it sure helps me out. I don't know if it helps you at all, but it sure helps me out, and uh, so we'll uh, start that back up this next week. Ezra chapter number 4 is where we're going to be at, and uh, what we're looking at, to give you a quick reminder, we're looking at what I consider some of the great spiritual warriors of the Bible, and one of the verses that sticks out to me in this study is a verse that tells us that these things are written for our examples, for our admonition, for our learning. We are given these accounts, these historical accounts, about these individuals with great purpose. It's not just to give us the history of how the nation of Israel came to be and thus how Jesus entered the scene and how salvation was brought to humanity. Those are all great things. But each and every one of these individuals we can glean from, we can learn from, and we can grow as a result of. And I see that here in the book of Ezra. Why we started with Ezra, I don't know. Uh, I shared with you that there's so many different folks that we can look at that I consider spiritual warriors in the Bible that uh, it would be hard for me to just pick one or two or three. And so we're going to work our way through in no particular order. It just seemed to me in my heart like Ezra was where we needed to go. And so we've spent the last several weeks working our way through this book. We won't recap all that we've looked at up to this point, except for we will look at what we looked at a couple weeks ago. Look at Ezra chapter number 4, and we'll jump in at verse number 23 and kind of catch us up to where we're at in this process. Verse 23 of chapter 4. Now, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem unto the Jews and made them to cease by force and power. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Then, chapter 5, verse 1, Then the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. Uh, you'll remember we looked last or two weeks ago at this idea that God's people had gotten distracted from the work that God had called them to do. Artaxerxes, the ruler of that era, comes to them, writes a letter, and says, Listen, I know I told you that you could go ahead forward with your plans, but now I'm telling you to stop doing what you're doing. And I feel in my heart like it's very much like what we've just been through with the coronavirus. 
and I'm just going to state it plainly to you today, um, in a lot of ways, we saw all across our country, we saw folks that, um, in my opinion, abused their power, abused their ability to say, this is what you can do and this is what you can't do. Now, we did our best throughout that process to do what we felt was right for our church. Regardless of what folks said we could or could not do, that was not so much the consideration as it was leaving a good testimony in our community and doing what we felt was safe and right for you all. That was the primary consideration. Uh, Looking back on it now, if you want to know my honest opinion, uh, I feel like we were two weeks or so late in getting back together. Uh, And I look back on it and I think through it, uh, and, and I do believe that I made some mistakes. And I wish now, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and I can tell you for sure that they don't teach you in Bible college how to deal with a worldwide pandemic. They don't teach you that stuff in Bible college. And so you, you really have to go one week to the next, hoping that God will reveal it to you, and being able to say with all honesty, I'm sorry I made a mistake. That's exactly where the children of Israel are here. They're in the same exact boat. You got these, these godly men who were doing the best that they could do, but they made a mistake. They got a little distracted, and they got misled. And then we saw last or two weeks ago, not only the distraction, but also the dwelling. God's house had become a mockery. They jumped in, they started the work, and then they didn't finish it. And that's something that we've always got to be mindful of here is we got to make sure that as we serve the Lord, as we give Him all that we've got, that we don't stop short of what He desires for this body of believers here in Brazil, Indiana. Uh, the tendency is, is we'll, I don't know if you're like me this way, but I'll make a huge push to try to get something done. I'm not necessarily talking about ministry related, but just in life in general. I'll make this huge push to get something done, and then I feel like I can just kick back and relax for a little while. Well, when it comes to the work of the Lord... There is no time for us to kick back and relax. I don't ever see that in Scripture. In fact, we're told over and over and over again by the Apostle Paul to do the exact opposite, to be careful not to do that. And so the dwelling, God's house, had become a mockery because they stopped short of what God really wanted for them. And then we saw the disturbance. God's love brought about chastisement in the children of Israel's life. Um. Again, this is out of the book of Haggai, by the way, because we decided to move there, and we will go back there here in a moment. But what we saw was God began to relinquish their supplies. Um, They were bringing in money, and it seemed like their bank accounts were empty. They were bringing in food, and it seemed like their bellies were empty. They were bringing in all these different things, and yet it seemed like it was never enough. And we shared with you how God sometimes steps in and intervenes and disrupts our lives in order to get us back on track where He wants us to be. And I have seen that over and over and over again in my life, how God steps in and He, he, by His love, allows chastisement into my life to get me corrected. And then we saw the direction. God's Word is ultimately what guided them back to doing what they're supposed to do. Now, turn with me from Ezra there to the book of Haggai. Haggai chapter number 1. And I want to show this to you in verse number 8. God comes to them. He says, uh, I'll tell you what, we'll start in uh, verse number 
Verse number 5, actually. Haggai chapter 1 and verse number 5. Apparently, whatever Haggai and whatever Zechariah had to say, it apparently had a big impact on the children of Israel. Because they went from having stopped the work for almost three years to now all of a sudden they go back and they pick up where they left off and they start the work again and they accomplish what God has set them out to accomplish. And we'll point out to you at the end of the lesson today, they didn't wait for a new decree from King Darius. They didn't wait for permission. They didn't wait for approval. They just did what God wanted them to do because they recognized ultimately that God was the higher authority. And it, it, it reminds me of a verse that says, should we obey God rather than man? The idea is, is who is, it, who is it that I'm most responsible to? Am I most responsible to man or am I most responsible to God? And of course, we know the answer to that question. Our greatest responsibility is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at chapter 1, verse 5. Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. This was God's doing in the lives of the children of Israel. Even though it appeared as though they had everything they needed, it still was not sufficient. And I believe with all my heart that God was doing this out of His love for Israel to draw them back to where He wanted them to be. Verse 7, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. At the end of the day, we saw the development, and that is whenever you live the life God wants you to live, when you go where He wants you to go, when you do what He wants you to do, when you say what He wants you to say, He is glorified, He is pleased, and what that brings into our lives is a sense, an overwhelming sense of fulfillment and joy. I get no greater joy and no greater sense of fulfillment than whenever I feel in my heart like the life I'm living is up to God's expectation and is bringing Him honor and glory. And so that's what we looked at two weeks ago, and now we're going to jump into some new stuff today. Look on at verse... I'll tell you what, we'll jump in at verse number 9. Ye looked for much, and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste. And ye run every man unto his own house. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. So God is telling them, this is what I want you to do. You haven't been doing that, and so this has been what I've been doing in order to get you back where I want you to be. Now look at verse 12, what happens. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, and the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, 
and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. What I'd like to do today is take a moment and share with you how we get back to that place where things were the way they were supposed to be. And then how we prevent in the future from making the same mistakes. You know, one of the things I have deeply considered, and it's something we'll probably have a roundtable on at some point in the very near future. I don't know if you can see it the way, if you see it the way I see it, but the world that we're living in, it's, it's, I'm trying to think of the right terminology to use this morning, but it seems like we're in a blender to me. And it seems like just whenever you get done going through this one event that just shreds us, they turn the blender on again and they just shred us again. And it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And I tell you, I don't expect for things to get a whole lot better. I think they're going to get worse before they get better. If they ever get better. And I know, I know that sounds really discouraging. And I hope that I'm wrong. But what if I'm not? What if things don't get better? What if things get worse? You know, we've been very blessed. Have we not? I mean, as a country, in my lifetime, in my 31 years of life, I don't, I don't remember a great deal of hardship. I really don't. I mean, we've had some tough stuff happen. Don't get me wrong. But I'm talking about really bad. We've been very blessed. What if it doesn't get better? What if it gets worse? What kind of life am I to live? What if, if you look at two years ago, three years ago, if I'd have told you that there were going to be different folks in authority all over our nation arresting preachers for just simply opening their doors, what would you have thought? And now the problem is that what's gone on sets a precedent for what can happen in the future. The biggest problem that we face is not that this occurred, because, again, the hope is is that this is a once-in-a-100-year event. Um, Happened 100 years ago, happened 100 years before that. Uh, In the early 1800s, in the early 1900s, a worldwide pandemic broke out, and the solution was shut everything down. And here we are in the early 2000s, and the same thing happens again. It all seems to... I don't know. I hope it doesn't ever happen again. But the precedent has been set. And it's very possible that we could face another time where they say, you're not allowed to meet each other. Can't do that. What do we do in that scenario? How do we respond? What is the appropriate response? Well, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Based upon what I have went through the last three months, four months, based upon what I've read in Scripture, based upon what I've counseled with other men of God, I do not foresee a day that we won't, at the very least, continue meeting with each other. 
Now, it may not be here in, in, in the church building, but I don't ever see a day where we say, you know what, we're not going to meet with each other. I'm just being honest with you. And you can, you can choose yourself whether you'll come or whether you won't, and that'll be between you and the Lord, and I won't have anything to say one way or the other. But if the day ever comes again, they say you're not allowed to meet with each other, you all come out to my place and we'll meet. And if that just doesn't seem like it's sufficient, we'll come here and meet. I just don't see a day again where we will close down and say we won't meet together. You say, Seth, what's the point of what you're trying to say? Well, it's real simple. We can make mistakes, but we got to learn from them. And that's exactly what happens here with Israel. They made some mistakes, and then they began to learn from them. And now the second go-around, they get it right. And that's what I want to make sure of. I want to make sure if things do get worse, if we do continue to go downhill, I want to make sure that we get it right. And right here in verses 12 through 15, we're given the prescription on how to get this right. So let's look at it this morning. You see, God has a proper expectation out of His children, uh, as do we. I don't know if you're like me, but we have expectations out of our children. We expect them to live a certain way, to behave a certain way. And I think that's an appropriate thing. In this case, God has every right to have expectations out of His children. Why? Because He conceived them. He conceived the nation of Israel. He called the nation of Israel. And He's been the one that's been caring for the nation of Israel. He has every right to expect out of them to be all that He's called them to be. To not sit on their hands, to not give up, to not be misled, to not get distracted, but to continue forward with the work that God has called them to do. You see... God is not a distant or absent Father. He's not. God is very present. Uh, one, of the, one of the big movements toward the beginning of our nation's founding was this idea that God kind of threw everything out there and then He just left everything to itself. That somehow God was distant from His creation. That's not what my Bible teaches me. My Bible teaches me that God is very near, that God is very present. One of the biggest problems in our country today, in my opinion, is fathers are absent. If you want to know what I think leads to about 90% of what we're seeing going on, I believe it's fatherlessness. I'm trying to be careful of what I say here because I know there are folks that listen to these sermons Suffice to say, I've got good friends whose fathers have been absent that are now on board with a lot of things you're seeing go on. And I chalk it up mainly to the fact that their dad just didn't do his job. Plain and simple. My dad taught me that you work hard for what you get. My dad taught me that you don't just get handed anything. My dad taught me that it is absolutely wrong in every single scenario to steal and to destroy somebody else's property. That's what my dad taught me. And unfortunately, my dad taught me to respect law enforcement. My dad taught me that. And what we're seeing happen is a breakdown of fathers not picking up their responsibility and doing their part. 
God isn't like that. God has given us every bit of instruction we need right here. He is not an absent father. He is not, he's not somewhere off in the distance just hoping that his children turn out okay. He is presently involved in every single thing that we're doing. Now, with the investment that God has made in his children, he has every right to have expectations out of his children. How invested is he in us? Well, hold your place there in Haggai and turn with me to 1 John chapter number 4. How invested is God in His children? Does He have a right to have expectations out of us? And if He does, am I meeting His expectations? That phrase is a phrase I use a lot from the pulpit. Are you living up to God's expectation? I use that phrase a lot. And the reason that God has a right to have expectations out of us is because He is deeply invested in us. 1 John chapter number 4 and look at verse number 7. The Bible says there, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's how invested He is in us. So much so He gave His only begotten Son for us. Now He has every right based on His investment, based on His care, based on the fact that He has brought us into His family, adopted us, based on the fact that we are now part of His kingdom. He has every right to have expectations out of us. That's what I want to focus on today. Last or two weeks ago, we looked at what we called uh, the fact that God is the source of our conviction. And what I want to look at this week is the fact that God is a supervisor of our conduct. God is a supervisor of our conduct. So look back at verse number 12, Haggai chapter number 1. We'll work through this just as quick as we can. And then we'll dismiss for the worship sermon. What I want to look at first this morning is the obedience of God's people. The obedience of God's people. In verse number 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. It was no longer about what Artaxerxes was going to think. He was gone. It was no longer about what these different men, these lawyers, remember the lawyers we talked about? It, it no longer is relevant what the lawyers are going to say or what the lawyers are going to do. It is a mute point what Darius, as the new king, was going to think of Israel. What mattered to God's people at this point was God said it, we are going to do it. And for us today, that could never be more important. God has said it, so we are going to do it. Come what may. You see, what we notice here in verse number 12 is that their obedience, first of all, came as a result of their understanding of God's Word. Notice whenever it says that they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, as they began to understand God's Word, they were able to obey God's Word. 
The second thing they did after understanding God's word is they submitted to God's messenger. Notice it goes on to say there in verse number 12 that they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. They recognized that Haggai was the the person that God had set up for that time period to lead the nation of Israel through this difficult stint and they recognized that what he was saying is what God wanted for them. They understood God's word, they submitted to God's messenger, and thirdly, they followed God's directions. Now, I want you all to be honest with me, okay? I don't know if you're like me, but when I buy something new that has to be assembled and it comes with directions, I am a directions guy. Are there any of you that are not direction guys? Okay. All right. There's about three of you that are being honest. Okay. There are some of us that we, to me, I've just, I've bought enough things. What's that place called? Ikea. I bought enough stuff at Ikea. If you don't look at the directions, I mean, if you don't read them closely, when you open that box up, that was that beautiful piece of furniture that you saw two hours ago in that one little corner of that room. And then you walk into the warehouse and you grab the box. You think, oh, wow, this is a small box. That'll be easy to put together. No, no, no. The bigger the piece of furniture and the smaller the box, the harder it is to put together. That's what I've learned at Ikea. You've got to read the directions. But there are some folks that are not directions people. In fact, they look at it as a challenge to try to get everything put together without the directions. They don't care if there's extra pieces sitting over here when they're done. If they can get it close to right without looking at the directions, they have achieved their goal. Some people are like that. Unfortunately, we can adopt this same mentality into our Christian lives. I don't need to look at the directions. I don't need to read through and figure out what goes where in my life. I could figure this out on my own. Well, you give that a shot for a little while and see how that turns out for your Christian life. You go six months without reading your Bible. See how that turns out for your Christian life. Oftentimes we wonder why things don't make sense. We wonder why this part doesn't fit in the place that it's supposed to fit. We wonder why it is that whenever we turn the key, nothing happens in our Christian life. Could it be that we failed to look at the directions, that we failed to follow the directions. God's people went through a process that didn't work. They were bringing in food, they were bringing in drink, they were bringing in money, and it it just wasn't working. And so finally they decided, you know what? We're going to refer back to the directions. And we're going to do what God tells us we ought to do. And suddenly, everything turned. The obedience of God's people. You have to look at the directions. You have to follow the directions in order for things to work the way that they're supposed to work. Number two, we see not only the obedience of God's people, but we also see the reverence of God's people. Look at the very end of verse number 12. It says, As the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. I'm actually going to be spending the whole worship sermon preaching on fear. But 
in the Sunday school lesson here, I'm te teaching on a different kind of fear. It's one thing to be afraid. It's another thing to have fear, the fear of the Lord. Now, I do believe to fear the Lord is to be afraid of the Lord. I think that there's nothing wrong. I, I fear my dad. My dad, I told you that he whooped us growing up, and I, I mean that. He didn't have to whoop us very much because when he did whoop us, he whooped us hard enough that we never forgot it. I can actually look back in my mind, and I can distinctly remember about six times that my dad whooped me so hard as a five, six, and seven-year-old that when I got to be eight, nine, ten years old, my dad didn't hardly have to whip me after that. If I felt like my conduct was getting me close to a whooping, I would stop doing that thing because I knew what was coming. Looking back on it, I had a healthy fear of my dad. And out of that fear came a reverence and a respect for who my dad was. And what happens in the children of Israel's life, while they respected and revered Artaxerxes, and while they respected and revered some of these lawyers, and while they respected and revered King Darius, they finally decided, there is one that we're going to respect and revere even more than them. And his name is Jehovah God. You see... One of the big problems of our society today is that there is no fear of God. None whatsoever. Even in many of our churches today, there is no fear of God. We have so brought God down to our level. We have so sullied His glory. We have so... And see, that, that is Satan's goal from the beginning. Satan's goal from the very beginning was to diminish the glory of God. And now with the world that we're living in today, even in many of our churches, that's exactly what Satan has achieved. He has taken God from where he rightly belongs in our hearts and our lives and has drawn God down to nothing more than just my best buddy. Don't get me wrong. I believe we should have an intimate, close relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. But the Savior that I serve is so much more than just that. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one who spoke and million mile, millions of miles per hour light came out of His mouth and framed and formed everything that we see in six literal days. And by the way, I've said this before here and I'll say it again. People have a hard time believing that God created everything in six days. I happen to have such an opinion of the God that I serve. He could have formed everything in six seconds if He wanted to. He didn't have to take six days to do it. I don't have any problem with six days. I don't think it needs to be six million years or six billion years. I think it can be just six days. That's what the Bible teaches and that's what I believe. The point that I'm trying to make is that if we're not careful, we get to a point where we respect ourselves more than our God, where we respect other people's opinion more than our God, when we respect government more than our God, and that is not the way God intended it to be. God Himself should be the one we revere. The reason I feared my father growing up was because of his power. I can remember back whenever I was four, five, six years old, 
thinking that my dad was the strongest man on earth. And now, praise the Lord, my boys think the same thing about me. They won't think it forever, but I'm going to let them think it for now. Uh, I think it was, was it Simeon? that just asked this last week about, Daddy, how, how do you get so strong or something like that? Is that what he said? How do you... Yeah, he said, how do you get so strong? I said, well, you got to eat your food and work hard. That's what you got to do. Eat all your food and work hard. We're still trying to convince them to eat certain things they don't want to eat. And so we use that every chance we get. My dad's power caused me to fear him. My dad's person caused me to revere him. My dad was a good man. My dad was an honorable man. My dad did things different than a lot of people, especially in his field of business. While there were a lot of folks doing things in a way they should not do them in that particular business, my dad worked really hard to do things the way they should be done in that business. And so I respected my dad because of who he was. Not only what he was capable of, but I respected him because of who he was. And then thirdly, I feared my dad because of his presence. It was amazing to me. It didn't matter whether he was home or whether he wasn't. Somehow he always knew what I had done. My mom was especially good at this. We used to have a, a nap time every day as little children. I hated nap time. Nap time was a scourge on society. Shouldn't have ever happened in my opinion. But about 2 o'clock every day, nap time came along. And she would send us into the living room to lay down on the couch to take a nap. And I... As a you know, as a, a little child, you try to figure out ways to convince your mom that you're taking a nap when you're really not. And so I always thought that I could go in there and I could goof off and act up as long as I sounded like I was snoring. I know it's embarrassing now that I look back on it. I'd, I'd go in there and I'd be goofing off and playing on the couch, and the whole time I was <laughs> trying to convince my mom that I was actually asleep. Then there were t- that never worked, and so I thought, well, I'll just be quiet. I'll stay awake, and I'll act up, and I'll goof off, but I'll just be quiet about it. And so I would try that. I'll never forget, there was one time in particular that I was, I was doing something. There was no way she could know how I was doing it. No way. I was on the couch, and I, was, I, was, I can't even remember what I was doing, but I was doing something very quietly. She could not have known it. And she hollers in the living room. She's all the way on the other side of the kitchen, which in our house... If you're in the other side of the kitchen, you can't see anything going on in the living room. She hollers all the way from the other side of the kitchen, and she says, Seth, stop doing whatever it was I was doing. And my jaw had to hit the floor. How in the world did she know I was doing that? It's like she could see me even though she wasn't there. Come to find out, there was a, a glass cover on the front of our fireplace, And for all those years, she would use the reflection on that glass cover to see us boys laying down on the couch. I never knew that until I became an adult. She finally told us her secret. (laughs) You know, the God that we serve is all-powerful. His person, his character, demands the highest respect. And he is always watching. In the deepest, darkest, most secret times of life, He can see you. This should cause us to fear Him, to revere Him. Number three, 
not only do we see the obedience of God's people and the reverence of God's people, but we also see the influence of God's people. Look at verse number 13 and verse number 14. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. What was it that influenced God's people? You see, God expects obedience. God expects reverence, but also God expects for us to have the right influence. So what was it that brought about this influence in the lives of the children of Israel? Well, number one, it was God using His preacher. Haggai comes along, and after three years of not having accomplished anything, Haggai comes along and he says, okay, this is what God wants me to tell you. And what I find interesting is outside of those first few things that we read in the first 11 verses or so, about the the chastisement of the Lord, and now God says, I want you to go and get the wood and start building again. That one of the very first things God tells them at the end of verse number 13, I am with you. That's it. I am with you. I love that. God uses His preacher. God uses the preaching. Not only does Haggai, by example, step up and say, okay, I'm going to step up, I'm going to have courage, I'm going to do what God calls me to do, but then the message that he's preaching to them, it takes hold. It begins to influence them. Number three, God uses His promises to influence His people. When He says, I am with you, what He's saying there is the same God that moved and worked throughout the time of Moses, the same God that worked and moved throughout all of these different things that you've read about my people leading up to this point, the same God that moved and worked in the heart and life of David and Solomon is the same God now that is with you. Hmm. His promises inspired His people. And then God uses His presence, the presence of His Holy Spirit, to influence His people. You know, I'm afraid that there are times in many churches today, not ours, but in many churches, that what is being used as influence to guide the church is what does the community want? What does the community expect? What could we do, what could we change about our church that would draw in the people from outside the church? The problem with that mentality is we are completely missing the mark. What happens inside the walls of these church is intended to please primarily one individual, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. What we ought to be asking ourselves is not what can we do to please society, but what can we do in here to please our Savior. The worship service is not the worship service for the people sitting in the pew. The worship service is the worship service for the God who is in here among us. We aren't worshiping because of what we can get out of it. We are worshiping because of what we can give into it. It's not about making me feel good, making me feel right. It's about, it's about the pleasure God gets out of what we're doing here. We've got to make sure that whenever we're gauging our influences, 
when we are determining what we are going to allow to influence the decision-making of our church, it must always be the Holy Spirit of God working and moving and speaking. We must make sure it's God's message, it's God's promises, it's God's presence guiding us in the way we ought to go. And then the last thing we see here is the perseverance of God's people. Look at verse 14 with me again, the very end. It says, And they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts their God in the four and twentieth day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Again, Darius had given no decree. The lawyers had never given any permission. The, the folks that lived around this area, they had not given their approval. This was not a popular decision. And yet, they did what God asked them to do with no hesitation. Why? Because God's authority was behind them. God's power was inside them and God's will was before them. They didn't question. They knew what God wanted and they did it. And from this point forward, that'll be our goal. It always has been. But what I'm saying is, is whenever we have hard decisions to make, we're going to consult one source, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And based on what He shows us, based upon what He tells us, that's what we must do. Will there be times where it's appropriate for us to, to not meet in this building? Perhaps. Perhaps it would be more appropriate for us to meet quietly somewhere else. Will there be times whenever we have to be careful about how we go about certain things? Perhaps. But the one person that I'm going to seek to please from start to finish is the Lord Jesus. Even if that costs us something. You see, God is magnified in our lives when we faithfully and fearfully follow the Holy Spirit's leadership in our lives. And the opposite of that statement is also true. God's glory is sullied in our lives when we, filled with fear of society over our Savior, choose to not follow the Holy Spirit's leadership in our lives. When we fail, when we flounder, when we fall, it reflects negatively on the the God that we serve. And the fact is, these four attributes that we've looked at today, the four attributes that should characterize the Christian's conduct, obedience, reverence, influence, and perseverance, are becoming more and more difficult to find in Christianity. Why? Because selfishness and convenience have taken their place. Whatever is the easiest thing to do is what we've started doing. We live in America. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Whatever the easiest thing to do, that's what we'll do. Ease and comfort and convenience must never be our guide. Living up to God's expectation ought to be. I, and I, I'll tell you this, I'm thankful. I'm so thankful to be in a church that I know feels the same way about this that I do. It would be so hard to be in a place where this was not already characterizations of the church. But I see a people who are obedient, who are reverent, who do allow God to influence their decisions in their lives, and who persevere. 
it makes a message or a lesson like this much easier to teach when you got folks like that. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we ask you to use this lesson today long beyond today. Lord, I pray that that these things will act as a guide for us in the future. We're living in a very messed up world. Everything seems upside down and backwards. Lord, help us to look to you for our guidance and our direction. Help us, Lord, to submit to you, to fear you, to obey you. Help us, Lord, never to give in and never to give up, but to stand strong. Forgive us, Lord, where we have failed in the past. Lord, I'm thankful that you didn't just write Israel off. I'm thankful, Lord, that you didn't just cast off Joshua in this situation, the high priest. Lord, I'm thankful that you gave him a second chance. And Lord, in that second chance, they stepped up and followed your direction. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. Help us, Lord, to endure. Help us, Lord, to meet your expectation. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.